You're listening to the Practice Brave Podcast. Welcome to the Practice Brave Podcast. I'm your host, Brianna Battles, a strength and conditioning coach and the founder of Pregnancy and Postpartum Athleticism. The Practice Brave Podcast brings you the relatable, trustworthy, and transparent health and fitness information you're looking for when it comes to coaching, being coached, and transitioning through the variables of motherhood and womanhood. If you're a pregnant or postpartum athlete or a coach working with this population, this show is specifically designed for you. All right, let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back to the Practice Brave podcast. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Munira Hudani, and she is a pelvic health physiotherapist in Canada. And we're going to be talking about the technical and tactical of diastasis recti today. And I think that she has done an incredible job of making diastasis something that is much easier to understand. She provides so many great visuals and information on her Instagram. And her and I have connected now for couple years over talking about just all the misinformation we see about diastasis and what we can do to provide solid, trustworthy information and understanding about something that has gained so much awareness and momentum over the years. So I'm really excited to bring forward a quality conversation with Munira so that you guys feel really, really confident in understanding either what your body is going through or what it's like during pregnancy or how it's recovering postpartum um, if a diastasis is something that you are concerned with or have been concerned with. So Manira, thank you so much for being here, girl. Oh, it is my pleasure. (laughs) So go (laughs) ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do. Sure. So I uh, am a physiotherapist and I work in Canada. And uh, I've been a physiotherapist for approximately 10 years now. And for the majority or the bulk of my career, I have been in pelvic health or women's health. And I just naturally realized that I had more of an interest in helping the pre and postnatal population. And so I just started shifting my focus towards helping uh, women who are pregnant and helping with postpartum recovery. And so because of that, I started seeing a lot more patients who have, of course, all conditions in in that sort of time period, but also specifically diastasis. So over the years, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well, but over the years, there has been such an increase in awareness of diastasis that more and more women are coming in specifically for that, even when they're pregnant. Uh, they want to learn what what can they do to prevent it from happening? What can they do right now to minimize the amount of work that they have to do afterwards for recovery? So, And they want to learn more about it. So through that, I just have had a lot of exposure and experience in kind of helping women and treating women with diastasis. So what I initially started with in approach was one that for the most part, you know, was the general idea that diastasis was something that really needs to be protected and really we need to be very cautious and careful with how we treat it. But what I initially started off doing and what I'm doing now is so very different. And that's only been in in over a few years where there's just been a, a change, not only in my approach, but also in the general approach um, and what's happening right now in just the overall awareness of diastasis. And that's online and also just in in clinical practice. So yeah, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about all of that, about how this concept that the pendulum is swinging over. So yeah, and I've certainly been realizing that and experiencing that firsthand. Oh, absolutely. It went from like no awareness. And I will talk about this forever because I had Cade six years ago and like it was never on the radar ever in any of my like coaching circle, fitness circle, friend circle, nothing. Right. And then now a few years later, uh, it's like, you can't follow any fit mom on social media and not hear about her opinion on diastasis, you know? So it's like, and then people are like, Oh my gosh, like I have it or something's wrong. And it's really hard to, I think for a lot of women to differentiate between, is this a problem? Right. Or is this something that's just like, that is a pretty normal part of my experience? So yes. I don't know if I'm sure you've seen that. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, 
hundred percent because that's what people are coming in and saying, you know, I went online and I heard this and I heard that I can't do this and I I shouldn't be doing this and I should be avoiding certain things. And what I love what you said there is, yeah, there are a lot of people who have the opinions, their opinions of what diastasis is and what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. And that's actually quite valid because a lot of what we are doing right now It is. We have very little research anyways to really stipulate and and give us standards and guidelines for what to do with diastasis. So in general, because we don't have those sort of specific frameworks and guidelines to go with, a lot of what we are dealing with right now, especially in the online space, is a lot of opinion. And there's nothing wrong with that. We all have our biases and I, I have my biases too. We just have to be aware that what we're doing right now, how we're helping, and we're probably all doing the best we can, but we're doing it with limited research uh, to support and back it up. And that is changing. There are some recent studies that are being done that are more consensus style studies, like where they've surveyed experts across Canada about diastasis and, and sort of developing some kind of guidelines through that. And there are some systematic reviews of other studies that have been done. And and so we have some research, but it's very, very limited. A lot of it is poor quality at this point as well and low, low sample numbers. So basically, it's just to point out that as long as we we want to do our best, we don't know everything. But we we also want to promote ideas that are empowering rather than fearful. Because once we start entering into like fear mongering, uh, what we end up doing is really limiting our patients and our clients and their progress. And so because of the traditional approach to diastasis, which is one of let's protect everything, let's do very gentle exercises and kind of following that framework, because of that, what we see are a lot of women who just are not getting the results that they're hoping for or seeing the changes that they really want. And so, yeah, I, I think in what I hope to do partly in this conversation is just kind of lay out some of the research that we have, just kind of put that out there as well. So we all know where we stand in terms of research and also where we might be going as just a general consensus amongst all of us uh, in how we are seeing it and treating it and managing it. Absolutely. And, you know, I try to be really forthcoming. I mean, people are like, so what evidence do we have for this, this, or this? And and I try to say like with, with pregnancy and postpartum athleticism as an umbrella, as everything that I have tried to put out there into the world, it's not based on one piece of evidence, right? It's bringing, it's trying to connect the dots between uh, women's health, pelvic health, strength and conditioning research and psychology, and then merging all of that information together in a way that makes sense for the population that I'm trying to help. And I think that is what, like, that's what I want people to know is we're not going off of just research. We're combining what we're seeing and doing the best we can with what we know right now to help the person in front of us. And then also try to do it in a way that people can at least what they, what I put out there, what they see, they can take that and then become really well informed about what their body needs instead of like, do this workout, do this program. It's going to fix your diastasis. It's like, that's not right for me. And then making sure that people are informed enough about their body and about these very common and normal experiences. So then they feel like they know what to do and they're not just relying on me or you or a program or that person on social media to guide them. They have more context Exactly. Oh yeah. It's so much more than just having diastasis and you're right. Like there are so many dots that we need to connect to put everything into like more of a larger framework and just a a bigger picture. And in doing so, I think that just helps people feel like you said, more confident and just more empowered to do something about it and to not feel like they are now limited from the condition and also limited forever. Absolutely. It's so, it's so key. So let's dive into what exactly is diastasis recti? Okay, sure. So, and I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure this, this has been said many times uh, in any video that anybody has ever watched on diastasis, but it, the traditional definition, the traditional classic approach to diastasis 
is to see the um, the two rectus abdominis muscles, the left and right muscles in the front of the abdomen spread apart in pregnancy. So diastasis is when you have an increased in an increase of space in between the two rectus abdominis muscles. So what we often hear is that there is a separation between the two muscles. And so this typically occurs in pregnancy when the body is sort of giving way for the growing baby. And that just means that it's a normal consequence of being pregnant because the abdomen has to extend outwards to allow the baby, to, the room to grow. And so I think what's really important to understand is that diastasis, while we're really concentrating and focusing on the linea alba, when we're talking about diastasis, I think it's important to look again overall at the whole picture of the abdomen and know that the whole abdomen is getting stretched out not right. just the linea alba. The linea alba is a connective tissue structure. Um, and so it does thin out and widen, but the connective tissue and fascia, which is just part of the connective tissue system, the connective tissue and fascia of the whole abdomen is getting stretched out in pregnancy. And so it's not just the front and that midline, but you can see, of course, just looking at anyone who's pregnant, that the whole the whole front of the abdomen gets uh, stretched out as well. So what that means is when we are helping women who are postpartum and they're coming to see us for their core um, and for their diastasis specifically, it means that we have to consider that part of what needs to be worked on is not just the, the linea alba or reducing the size of that gap, but part of it needs to be working on the rest of the abdominal wall muscles and connective tissue. So when you think of the classic picture of like the mummy pooch or the mommy pooch, you know, you, you see there's sort of this kind of sagging, hanging belly. And when we see that right now, we're kind of attributing that to the linea alba. Oh, that is diastasis. But actually, if you just think about it, you look at the picture, you look at the anatomy, Part of that is the linea alba that had remained stretched after pregnancy, but the rest of it is the abdominal wall, the, uh, the rectus abdominis muscles, the lateral abdominal muscles, which are the obliques and the transverse abdominis. So these muscles were affected, thinned, and stretched out as well in pregnancy. And so part of that remained stretched and weakened postpartum. So it, again, it's not just the linea alba that we need to consider. And if we do that, if we just really only concentrate on that one connective tissue piece in the center, we might be missing a big piece of the puzzle. And again, it could really limit what we do with our patients and clients, and it could limit the progress that they see. Absolutely. And I know that that's been a huge push in what you've done and quite a few, you know, people, I guess, that are maybe more progressive in the diastasis circle is trying to expand the conversation beyond just doing like basic rehab exercises on a table. And that's a great place to start, of course, that that'll teach like that neuromuscular connection and that awareness and the basic control. But after that, like, how are we, you know, if we have to get stronger, and I think that's where then combining what we know about women's health and pelvic health research and core and pelvic health considerations to then the strength and conditioning world. And that was what I always saw as being a significant gap is like, well, yeah, this is good, but how does it translate to what I actually want to do? And that was the question I was asking over and over and over five or six years ago. And and again, it was just so overwhelming and confusing because I'm like, well, how does this heel slide that's maybe targeting this, like, you know, your TA or whatever, like, how is that then going to, how are we going to progress that? How are we going to progress that? You know, and asking those questions over and over. Yes. A hundred percent. So you're just sort of tapping into something that is, in my opinion, one of the most important things when it comes to diastasis rehab and kind of even taking the word diastasis out of it, just the postpartum core rehabilitation of the postpartum core. It's the concept of progressive overload. So again, depending on how you're currently viewing diastasis, you may be using a paradigm that promotes 
restriction of movement and uh, protection of connective tissue and protection of the of the the muscles and limited uh, exercise, reduced intra-abdominal pressure. So you you may be using that kind of system or framework with all of your clients and so and staying in there. But there comes a point in time that we need to stop treating this condition like an acute injury. So if we think that you know having diastasis means that you are broken, if we are kind of buying into that, then we're, we're spreading that kind of message to our clients that, okay, what you have, A, is very serious, and it, therefore you need to be very careful and cautious with what you do. We're also spreading the idea that your tissues are very fragile And so if you're fragile, that means, again, you need to be very, very particular in how you move and what you do and what you lift and how much you lift. And also the idea that you are, um, that the core is broken. You know, when we have words like separated, the, there's the, are split open. When we think of words like that, we're again, promoting ideas that, okay, now there's this injury or that you're broken. So you're more vulnerable, A, because you have an injury that needs to be protected. And also because of that, that you're more vulnerable or susceptible to further injury. And so now, ultimately, what that leads to is a belief that I really shouldn't be moving, I really shouldn't be doing anything, and that the only thing I really can do is just protect and not move at all. And then what that leads to is a fear of the one thing that will really help people, which is what we were just talking about, progressive overload and strengthening. And so, yeah, I think it's appropriate to really you know, go case by case. And some, some people do need to spend some time kind of scaling back and reducing what they're doing and just relearning how to move and how to access their muscles. But like you said, we can't stay there for so long. All of that rehabilitation stuff is really good as a starting point. And then we need to move on to progressively challenging our muscles and our tissues. And so what that means is as soon as something feels like it's getting easier, and if they, they are able to demonstrate that they're doing it well and they've got good control over it, we move on and progress. And as soon as that gets easier, again, then we move on and we progress. We, we don't ever stand stagnant, uh, stay stagnant. We always progress. And that's how we load the tissues. And through loading, is what, that's how things can change. That's how we can make impact through, to our muscles. And through loading, we can also then influence the collagen synthesis that we need and are hoping to tap into to make changes in the connective tissue system. I love everything that you just said, because what this, well, what this does is like progressive overload is a very fundamental principle in the strength and conditioning community, right? Like that's what we are taught over and over. That's how you get athletes better, stronger, faster, whatever. Like that's how you program design when you're trying to take an athlete through a cycle or toward a goal, a performance goal or whatnot. But for some reason, I, I have felt like this has been such a neglected component of rehab in a lot of different ways. Like there hasn't been, it hasn't been a popular model to go off of nevertheless for diastasis. Right. I think it's because we've seen, it's almost like the mindset behind diastasis where people have their mind made up regardless of what they have been told or have seen where there's this, this mindset or attitude of exemption. Like, Oh, I don't have to worry about that. I was fine with my last baby. Does it's fine now. I don't need to make adjustments to my training during pregnancy. And I'm going to like kind of jump right back into things postpartum because I feel fine. I'm doing okay. And I know I just, it's going to take time. So there's that one framework attitude mindset that I come across quite often working yes. with athletes. And yeah. then, the, but then there's the other mindset that I see, which is the fragile and like have so much fear around their body. They're afraid to sit up off the couch. They're afraid to to do like a lot of like to baby wear, or they're afraid to do any, like to go to their gym and feel like they have to modify everything. There's just so much fear around their movement and their body. And they're like, Brie, I think I just need surgery and that will fix all the things. And I know that that's a conversation we're going to get to in a few questions from now, but (laughs) you know, we're seeing such um, extreme interpretations of something that what we're trying to get across here is very right. normal and has a lot of hope and is a process. It is a process 
to manage and it is a process to improve, even if improving means eventual surgery. Right, right, exactly. And so what you often see in addition are, I guess what you, what I would call camps, like there are different camps of, of women who, or I've just, again, the, the different approach. So we have, let's say one camp that is again, focusing more on protecting and restricting movement, protecting the tissue, restricting movement. Um, And then we also have camps that are, in my opinion, maybe spending too much time emphasizing things like anterior tilt, uh, rib position, posture, breath pattern, to the point where it's taking, um, it's really, they're they're making people spend time on things that really aren't going to make or break their, 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 where they're at and make the changes to the tissues that they really need through the strengthening process. And I I think there's always a time and place for posture and there's a time and place to learn about breathing and improve it. And I'm not diminishing any of that because I I absolutely work on that with my patients too, but it's just, you don't want to spend so much time on that if they're not only getting to a certain point and then not moving on from that and working on what really needs to be done, like I said, which is strengthening and building up their tissues again. So, and then we have like, you know, coaches like the pregnancy and postpartum athleticism coaches, uh, in addition to therapists who just can see it in a way that what we need to do is build up the tissues rather than kind of spend our time on these sort of smaller elements of it, getting them to do what they are actually afraid of, but doing it in a way that is step-by-step and gradual so that we remove the fear and we start tapping into their muscle muscle system and building them back up again. Absolutely. And I, what I try to convince coach to, the coaches that I work with is like, hey, if we have an athlete come to us and they just had knee surgery or they're really, they're managing a knee injury and they don't want to have surgery, we know how to make adjustments. We either scale back the load, we decrease the range of motion, we change their position. Right, exactly. uh, We like, uh, we add volume, we decrease volume. Like we make all of these different adjustments and have exercise modifications that are endless because we understand that their knee can't do what it's always done and make an adjustment right now so that it can eventually build back to what it was doing before, or at least do it in a way that feels good and fulfilling and athletic. And we cannot look at diastasis or frankly, any other human injury without that same kind of mindset and process. And again, if we're trying to get this across to coaches, it's like, oh my gosh, this is the majority of people in your gym. The majority of your clients are going to be having babies at some point in time. We, it's not a special population. So it's looking at something that so many of your clients will be going through and say, hey, like this isn't weird. This isn't hopeless. But it's also something that we can make some adjustments to right now on behalf of your long-term performance and just overall like confidence in your body and not even like aesthetic confidence, just like movement confidence. Exactly. Yeah. I know we could talk about this forever. So like, I know. We really could, yeah. <laughs> we're all fired up right now. So tell us, how does somebody know they have a diastasis? Like what are the descriptors? What is, what is, what constitutes a diastasis from a measuring standpoint or a, a feeling standpoint? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sure. So what constitutes a diastasis? Well, if we are following the traditional approach to measuring diastasis, then what we're doing is we're assessing this amount of space between the rectus abdominis. Now, I think we need to put a little stipulation here that there really is no standardized approach right now, even in research, and there is no standardized agreement on what is quote unquote normal. So, and the reason is because in the research, the way they are measuring is different. So, um, the location where where they're measuring, whether it's right above the belly button or halfway between the belly button and the and the, the the xiphoid process, which is the chest bone, or you know they have different places along the linea alba that they're measuring. And in addition to that, are some of the research studies measure at rest, completely at rest. Some of them measure with a little bit of a curl up, a little bit of a sort of a crunch style exercise movement. Uh, some will do that and 
suggest just to measure as soon as the shoulders have lifted off the ground and some will measure it when the shoulder blades have completely lifted off the ground. And so because of that, we have all of these different ways that are that diastasis is being measured in research that we don't really have agreement on what is the best way to do it. And so therefore the numbers that we have from research are also different and varying amongst and across the studies. And I think some of these things are quite important to just point out because how you measure will directly impact the the reading that you get and potentially create false negatives as well. So if you end up lifting your head up and lifting your shoulder blades, you know, doing like almost like a full crunch, you're going to have a reading that's much smaller than if you are just measuring someone completely at rest and who who haven't contracted the rectus abdominis muscles. Because as soon as you contract, those rectus muscle bellies do approximate and come together. And so Typically, what we talk about in terms of numbers, generally the consensus for that is around two centimeters. So above the umbilicus, above the belly belly button, to have anything beyond approximately two centimeters, give or take a few millimeters, based on the research studies, everyone now has different um, numbers, but give or take two centimeters, um, and this is at a location somewhere above the belly button. If anything is bigger than that, then that is considered diastasis. So in terms of numbers, that's what we're looking at. But when it comes to descriptors and what you actually see in person and, you know, what people are coming in and explaining and describing what it is that they have, well, they will describe, well, I feel like I have, I I feel like I still look pregnant. I feel like I get bloated so easily. I feel like I, you know, I've lost all of the weight everywhere else, all of my baby weight is gone. I'm back to pre-pregnancy weight, but I still have an abdomen or a belly that looks like I'm still five months pregnant. And so, I, or they also say like, I feel like I, I don't have a core. I feel disconnected to my core. It feels empty there. I, I just don't really sense that there is anything. It's empty. It's hollow there. So these are some of the descriptors and, and um, things that people will say commonly when, when they have you're considering as diastasis. In terms of like studies and evidence and what is currently out there in the research regarding symptoms uh, or connected symptoms to diastasis, things that are sort of coexist or what we can expect to see in someone that has diastasis, there are a few more things. So in addition to having like protrusion of the or distension of the abdomen, We also know, and this is supported by research, but also not surprising, but it's funny that we kind of need research to be able to say this, but there's also weakness in the rectus abdominis, which makes sense because that muscle is stretched, thinned, and potentially weakened in pregnancy, and it can stay like that postpartum. So we do have studies that say that women who are postpartum have a harder time doing sort of crunch style exercises and and uh, rectus abdominis uh, strengthening exercises. They're weaker there. There is also weakness in. There can be weakness in. I'm saying I'm not saying that everyone will present with this, but just to present an idea that it's not just the lineal, but there's a lot more going on here. So you may also have women who have difficulty doing things that involve rotation. We have recent studies and research that support this, that actually, if you have something of diastasis, you you may have difficulty doing some rotation tasks. And that's not everyone, but there may be some difficulty there. Again, not surprising because the whole abdominal wall was stretched out in pregnancy. And if we don't work on that afterwards, some women will still have some lingering weakness. So they may have weakness there. There's also um, thinning and stretching of the posterior rectus sheath. So that's basically just a connective tissue uh, extension that that comes from the transverse abdominis muscle, and it travels underneath the rectus abdominis. Um, And so just to keep in mind that there's so much connective tissue and fascia, there's layers and layers of this in the abdominal wall. And so the posterior rectus sheath is the connective tissue that comes from the transverse abdominis muscle. And that particularly has been shown is thinned and stretched out from pregnancy. It's not surprising, again, not surprising. Mm -hmm. But what that means is you could end up seeing 
or having, you could end up seeing someone that has difficulty in managing intra-abdominal pressure. And so you may see more doming in certain tasks. So that's another kind of symptom or finding that you would, you would see. One, one thing that is not uh, supported by research at this point, it's a bit of a misconception right now, is the idea that diastasis creates low back pain and that having diastasis is a risk factor for having low back pain or vice versa. Um, and actually, and there are several studies right now at this point that essentially have come to the same conclusion that those with diastasis are not more likely to report lumbopelvic pain than those without it. So we do have to be a little bit careful when describing low back pain and associating it to diastasis. Uh, and then in addition, another connected symptom in this population, we, we often see pelvic floor conditions. Uh, so, and sometimes diastasis is actually included as a pelvic floor dysfunction or pelvic floor condition. I wouldn't, personally put that in the same category, I would just, I would consider it more abdominal wall dysfunction. And I would say pelvic floor dysfunction is actually something different where we're talking more about urogynecological issues like prolapse and incontinence. But in any case, when it comes to prolapse, we have a little bit of conflicting research as well here, where one study says there is no correlation between having diastasis and, and prolapse. We also have a study that says there's weak evidence or there's a weak correlation between diastasis and prolapse. So again, I think when it comes to what we see in person and, and with our clients and our patients, we can't we shouldn't assume that they all will have low back pain or it will create it in the future if we don't address it, or that it will automatically create a prolapse or that it'll make their pelvic floor issues worse if we don't address the diastasis. So we have to be very careful in our wording because a lot of that isn't substantiated at this point by research. Right. No, I, I <clears throat> love everything that you said, just because I think it's it's really overwhelming to try to figure out, is this something that I have? What does this look like? What does this mean? Is it, is it scary and wrong? And I just think that, you know, we are trying to put out better information so that people can know and know that like no two stomachs with a diastasis will present the same or look similar. And exactly. I know like for me, I was like, well, my belly button just looks weird. And I was like, yeah. oh, well, you just, well, you must just have a hernia. And like, you know, and just sort of, um, that was years ago where there, it was almost like a dismissal of something that I thought was wrong. And it wasn't because I felt that terrible. I know, obviously like my training felt fine, but it was just more of that awareness of my body and that things needed to shift and look different right now. And then, um, I have a great picture that you guys have all probably seen on Instagram or blogs or whatever of Lisa, Ryan, and I, who had a very similar measuring diastasis, but very yes. different presentation. And so yes. I get so many people in my DMs that are like, OMG, Brie, I have a three centimeter diastasis or three finger diastasis. And they're like, so freaked out or even less than that. Like I have a one finger diastasis and like, there doesn't have yes. to be that much fear around that. And then I get on the other end of that pendulum, someone who has a very significant diastasis sends me a picture of their stomach. And you know, you can just like, for you and I, we can just look at a stomach right now for the most part and say like, yeah, like I, I can see that like, we know. Yeah, pretty, yeah. that is a pretty significant diastasis or girl, you're fine. Like that you don't need to worry about your abs right now. Like, yeah. but I think it's, you know, people need that information to be able to know, okay, like I'm actually somebody who should be very mindful and, you know, needs to walk this course of, of improving and rehabbing and strengthening. And other people have to, you know, like I try to say, like, you either need to be reeled in or you need to be pushed out. Like, <laughs> like there's, yeah. it, it's, it's really just like, and it's having that context for yourself. And so if any of these things that we've talked about with presentation or symptoms are resonating with you, or you're not sure, like, feel free to send us a message or DM and we can help Absolutely. Guide, guide that path too. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I'm still not sure, I don't know what to do. Something feels different or looks weird. We have like, we get that. Like we see that every day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so just going to touch on this really quick, how like diastasis and hernias often go hand in hand. So can you talk about that and maybe like what the difference is for people that, that don't know? 
For sure. So a hernia is when there is an actual hole through the connective tissues. So, and whereas diastasis is just thinning and widening and stretching of the tissue, there's no hole, there's no actual physical hole where something can poke through or push through. Whereas a hernia itself, there is an actual space there for the, let's say the intestines or the bowels to go through it. And it's not to say that, well, we don't really have a lot of research uh, regarding, I think to my knowledge, there's not a lot of research so basically into diastasis creating hernia or um, the presence of a hernia with diastasis. I'd, I'd have to look into that specifically. But we do know that uh, the connective tissue elements of the abdominal wall are affected by pregnancy. And for some women postpartum, those tissues are lax and remain lax afterwards. And so it's not to say that you will absolutely have a hernia because you've got thinned out connective tissue. It's, there's no, again, we don't really have that kind of study or support yet. But what we can say is, in general, whether you have a hernia or you have diastasis or a relaxed abdomen, what you want to do is really learn strategies for intra-abdominal pressure management. And that's naturally what we would do in, in helping anyone that has diastasis is teaching them, A, about how to spot in what to look out for in your core. To, if you are uh, maybe doing something that is producing more pressure than what your core can handle in that moment. And those are things like doming and abdominal bulging, where the whole abdomen is just kind of getting pushed out. So if you see that for someone that has diastasis, it's also something that you would want to be watching out for in anyone that has a hernia because that pressure can directly influence what's happening to the hernia. It could push it out further or it may not have any effect at all. So just learning strategies around being able to manage that pressure and keep it within the abdomen and the core versus allowing it to push out too far. And I think for hernias, one other important piece of advice would be just to monitor it, you know, a lot of women will have a hernia and it's completely asymptomatic. It doesn't create any issues, any problem, doesn't limit them in any way. The only thing that they would say was maybe they just don't like the way it looks. It looks different. It looks funny. And so if it's not creating an issue in terms of function, then it's not necessarily anything to worry about, but just to monitor it. So there are things that you can look out for like strangulation or obstruction, and you know this is happening when there's pain. If there's a, an increase in pain in that region, or if the area becomes reddened and irritated, if you see these things or if you're experiencing these things, that's when you should really seek medical attention because you don't want it to get to a point where the blood flow has been cut off or it's actually being caught and, um, and now it's stuck outside of the abdominal cavity. So these are more of a medical necessity. But if, again, if you're not noticing that the size of the hernia is changing or increasing with what you're doing, and it's not increasing in pain or anything like that, then it's really just kind of a, something there to just be aware of, but not like, again, hyper-focused on it, but just to be aware of what to look out for, just to have that knowledge. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it, it gets really confusing out there because we're told, oh, you have a hernia. Oh, that's really bad. Okay. You must get surgery. And that's just not always the case and definitely seek out an assessment from a pelvic floor physical therapist and from a doctor just to have that kind of uh, conversation and collect information about your body. But overall, it's not something, I mean, I wish somebody would have told me that it like basically try to rehab your diastasis as much as possible if your hernia is asymptomatic. And then if you still choose to get surgery then okay. But it doesn't necessarily have to be something that, OMG, I need surgery right now to address this hernia. No, exactly. And actually, you just raised a really good point. What you end up doing for diastasis is automatically going to help the hernia. Right. Because again, it follows the same principles. You want to learn how to use your core muscles to contain and manage pressure. So you really want to learn how to use your TA and how to draw in the ab abdominal wall, which usually happens through a TA engagement. And that way you can do that when you're, when you're engaging in things that are a little bit... Um, higher in pressure, like if you're coughing or sneezing, if you can learn to sort of draw in against that pressure, that'll help. It'll help support the, the hernia in that moment. But also, even if you just kind of 
feel the hernia or even press into it when you know you're going to be coughing or sneezing or something like that. Again, it's just one way of of just being in tune with what's going on there. But another question that I often get asked is, well, what exercises should I avoid or what exercises should I do for my hernia? Can can a hernia be healed with with exercise? And, And these are very common questions that people will ask. And so when we're dealing with a hernia, because there is an actual hole there, exercise is not going to uh, sort of fill up the hole. The only thing that can correct that is surgery. It doesn't mean that you have to have surgery. Again, if you're asymptomatic and you're, you're functioning and able to do everything you want to do, and you're not experiencing that pain or that strangulation and the reddened and, and irritated area, it doesn't mean that you have to have surgery. But the only way to actually correct a hernia is through a surgery. And so when it comes to exercises, just keep in mind that if you have a hernia there, then maybe you want to work towards exercises that are more front loaded versus start with those kinds of exercises. So what I mean by that is maybe you're working on things that where you're leaning backwards or you're on your side doing things like side planks or you're doing things in a more backwards leaning position, sort of like training towards like V-sits or modified V-sits with your feet are still on the ground, those kinds of things, and then work towards a plank, a full plank. You know, you wouldn't want to start with a plank because if there's a lot of pressure in that moment and you haven't learned how to control it and to really engage your TA and the rest of the abdominal muscles to pull the abdomen in, then you you may be putting a little added pressure now on that hernia. So just to pay attention to the positions that you're exercising in. But that being said, you could also do exercises that don't directly load the hernia. And depending on how you're doing it with how you're managing pressure, it could still impact it. It's also about technique and how you're doing it, how you're breathing it, how well you are able to reduce, let's say, doming and bulging of the abdomen. So, but these are all very similar concepts to what you would be paying attention to for diastasis in general. So just do it gradually and just have that one extra um, note in the back of your mind on what to watch out for for the hernia. Right. They really do go hand in hand. And so then with that, when is a diastasis considered healed or at least manageable? Okay. Right. So I think the tricky thing with this question is that it actually comes down to individual goals. So it's really case by case and, and what it, what it means to be healed to the person in front of us. So some people that means a healed diastasis means uh, I feel better in my clothes. I have a flatter stomach and I feel, I feel better about myself because of that. So healed means I now have a flatter and more toned stomach. Aesthetically, that's what healed means to some people. Okay. Some people healed means I am now able to do everything I want to do. I'm not restricted. I know how to do it. I'm no longer um, holding myself back, but I can go through things now gradually and progressively, and I can, I'm not limited by diastasis, and I'm, I'm now doing CrossFit. I'm now playing soccer or volleyball or whatever it is. I'm going back there, and I'm, I'm back out, and I'm doing it. So that's what healed means to a lot of people as well. Sometimes it's a combination of both aesthetic and function, but really healed diastasis does not mean that your gap is closed. So what we need to do is, yes, although right now we are kind of looking into the the linea alba and and we're really measuring it and focusing on it, which I actually do much less of now personally, but because that is kind of the general um, idea of what diastasis is, in the back of our minds, we end up thinking, okay, so we know we're better once the gap is closed, when actually that's not true. You're better once you know you're able to do what you want to do, and you know you're better once you feel better about the way you look as well. Because we know for sure in re- from research and just, of course, understandably, the aesthetics matter to a lot of people, and we shouldn't diminish that. And so, because it can really affect one's self-esteem and and their uh, self-image. So it depends on what it what the person um, really wants and wants to get out of rehab to know what it means 
to be healed. Yeah. And um, for for the athlete brains listening, where it is <laughs> never good enough, right? Where it's really hard to, you want to reach a goal or a standard or a number or a look. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. it is hard. And that was really hard for me. It took yeah. about over two years for me to get to a point of acceptance after having Cade where it's like, you know what, this is good enough. And that was, it was more of a, um, (laughs) it was more of like a maturity and almost spiritual process of, of like understanding my new body and my changed body. And it, I mean, even looking back, like I wasn't even somebody who was like aesthetically that different, right? It was just more of my own brain that was this asshole of like, it's not good enough. You're not normal. You're not what you were. And I, what I want to like tell every postpartum woman is your body is going to change and your brain is going to change. There is no escaping the changes of motherhood and how that impacts us. That's all very individual. Um, and diastasis is just sort of part of that greater conversation of like accepting that we've changed, accepting that our body will keep transitioning in a lot of different ways. And this is just one of the ways and we can do a lot to improve and manage and heal. But so much of that has to come down to our mental approach to that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's no fault of anyone because it's just how we're viewing it as well. So it can be really um, frustrating to be measuring your diastasis and not see changes there. And the whole thing is we don't even know if we can change it. Right. So that's the tricky part with diastasis is maybe we're measuring something that we don't actually have influence over or voluntary control over. So are we spreading a narrative that closing a gap, something that is actually attainable and is that, and how important is that? You know, I think for some people, who have a very large space or thinning, a lot of thinning of that lineal, but maybe there's some functional element there that needs to be looked into. But for some women who, or I would say the majority of women who fall into, let's say a two or three, maybe even a four centimeter, I guess, gap, what does that mean? And can we actually close that? And the research is not at all supportive of that yet. We have very conflicting research and nothing definitive that says this is how to close it. This is how it closes. And this is what we need right. to do to, to close. Right. So, and I, yeah. And it's like, we need to be told that like, you are okay. You are still okay. You're going to be okay. This is not a like we can do a lot to improve how your body feels, even if your diastasis doesn't improve to what you thought it would be or want it to be. We are can there can be still be so much quality of life and movement, even if you have a diastasis. So you are okay. And if you haven't listened to the podcast I recorded with Lisa Ryan about diastasis, definitely do that because we talk so much more about that side of things. Um, about being okay and athletic and making like coming to terms with, with our bodies and what our abilities were, even if we didn't have a totally conventionally resolved diastasis. Exactly. And what I'm hoping that a start, like, well, it's already happening, but what I'm hoping Mm -hmm. continues to happen um, and happens even at a faster rate is that we continue on with this pendulum swing of what we're using to define diastasis and how we're approaching it and managing it because there is a a swinging motion that's happening right now. And so I think it's really going to help a lot, a lot of women in general, because maybe we just in general have been focusing on the wrong thing. Possibly we're focusing on something that we actually don't, can't change, have no ability to change. Therefore, we might just be looking at something that is in the wrong direction and potentially right. we want to start looking into okay you want to look better you want to feel better you want to be stronger you want to be able to doing you want to be able to do what you used to do and that can be achieved through strengthening through toning of the abdominal wall through targeted exercises and so depending on the status of the connective tissue 
flattening of the abdomen can happen. You can have a flatter tummy through abdominal wall strengthening. In some cases, because things were so stretched out, it might take longer. In some cases, the way to get that fully is through surgery. But either way, you need to strengthen the muscles because that will absolutely help build up the tone again. And so there is this pendulum swing, like we have started moving away from talking about the linea alba as, or like diastasis as a separation of the rectus abdominis to it's more of a widening of the linea alba that occurred in pregnancy. And we're moving away from just thinking of the linea alba as the problem itself to let's look at the whole abdominal wall. Um, And we're also looking at more of the tension of the connective tissue and the linea alba versus the distance and and how wide the space is, but how much tension are you producing there? Uh, And then another thing that we're doing is we're starting to change how we assess. So traditionally, you are measuring when you're on your back, but it's not functional. um, And we are now moving towards more upright functional positions and assessing that way. So there is a shift and the swing that's kind of happening. And I hope with that, we remove fear, we end up promoting strengthening progressive overload, and we take away a lot of the focus that has been on reducing the size of the gap to rebuilding your core, rebuilding and retoning and and just building it back up again. I totally agree. And so you just uh, mentioned surgery. So in your opinion, when is surgery indicated? Uh, okay, so surgery, <laughs> it, would be indica- <laughs> it would be indicated when, I, in, in this is just sort of general consensus, when you've been working on your core for at least a year, and I would even extend that up to two years, and you haven't noticed any change, or you're not where you want to be, you've done everything you can, you've done exercises, you've worked with a physiotherapist, you've worked with a trainer, you've tried to strengthen, but there really isn't that much changing in your core, in how you look and how you feel, that's when you would want to look into surgery. Or if you're not wanting to wait two years and you know that having diastasis is contributing to, I guess, your inability to participate in things that you want to do and you want to get back to those things sooner, then you might actually go and seek out surgery before, let's say, the one or two year mark. Um, And also, again, if you just don't feel happy with the way you look and because, again, depending on the connective tissue status, you could be doing a lot of the right things and strengthening and exercising as best as you can, but it takes so much longer for connective tissue to actually change that. And, and there are different concepts and ways to load the connective tissue that not everybody even is able to do. So in that case, you might even want to go for a surgery as well or consider it because some of those connective tissue changes will just take a lot longer. Yeah. And it's, there's so many different indicators for surgery. And I think one thing that we've both said is it's not, it shouldn't be your first choice with diastasis recovery, but it can still be a choice, whether it's by, you know, whether it's your circumstance and time, or it's just something that you feel is right for, right for your body. And there's no shame around getting an abdominoplasty or also known as a tummy tuck. Um, It can be a good option for a lot of people, but it's also a really significant choice and, you know, it ha- it's a really significant recovery too. And so that's one thing I do want to caution. And I am somebody, I haven't talked too much about this on the podcast, but I am somebody who opted for surgery um, about a year ago. And I did that because after my second pregnancy, the, the mesh from my hernia repair that I had after my first pregnancy was really damaged. Right. So beyond, right. just the, beyond just the, um, the diastasis, I had that hernia mesh that was really my personal driving point because I was aesthetically okay. Mm -hmm. My presentation of a diastasis was not necessarily an aesthetically poor one, although obviously it had marks of motherhood. (laughs) Um, And, but you know, like everyone has their own driving force and reason for surgery, but unfortunately there's still a lot of dogma and um, yes. a lot of very strong opinions on 
why or if someone should get this surgery and what it means. And I just, you know, do want to say like walk the spectrum first before you choose this surgery because it is a really significant, really significant recovery. And it does come with a lot of different considerations that frankly, our research and our community is, has not been very prepared to provide information on. And, you know, you and I are both working on trying to change that when, uh, <laughs> when life allows for yep. it more. So we are trying <laughs> to put out some better information for how do I know if I need surgery? What should I know? What should I do in recovery? And yeah, like I've learned a lot and I just am trying to kind of, I've learned by doing in this process and I really wish it didn't have to be that way, but you know, I, and I, I feel okay now, but that doesn't mean that it's not better. It's just different. And that's something that I think we have to really put out there when it comes to talking about surgery is for some people it might, you know, it's all kind of objective with how we measure that. Not necessarily better. It's just going to be different. And that different can be positive or that different can just be straight up different. <laughs> right. It's so true. And like, I, we can probably talk about this as well forever, yes. but like what do you expect post, um, post-op and post-surgery and how you might look afterwards and your expectations of that and what you might see in like the, the surgeon's waiting area, like before and after pictures, depending on how, what your abdomen might be in that moment, it, it may not look like that. It might be actually a little bit of a different experience in how you recover. So right. just to know what you're going in uh, with and, and how it, it may or may not change afterwards, but just kind of what are your expectations? Just kind of check in on with that as well. Yes. And if you're, and this is something Lisa and I talk about a lot is like if you're choosing surgery so that you can finally love your body, Hmm. that might not be the right reason to choose surgery because for me, my, I felt like I had a really solid, solid relationship with my body had done so much work and had overcome so much with like really finding acceptance and appreciation for my body and what it could do and all that stuff. And then surgery really, really challenges that even for the people that are like really solid in how they felt about their bodies, it's because it's a huge recovery process. It's managing expectations. It's knowing what's normal, what's not. Should I look like this? Do I look weird? Oh my gosh, the scar. Like there's so many things that get brought up. And so I would also suggest going into surgery with a place that's like not desperate for, um, not desperate for, the, a certain outcome, just more of like an open-mindedness and so much patience, right, like so much. Right. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but you're right. That is totally a conversation that we should probably have on another podcast at some point. You guys would <laughs> absolutely yeah. love to get your feedback on, on this conversation and this episode. So thank you so much for listening. Munera, where can people learn more about you and the resources that you offer? Oh, sure. So I am most active on Instagram. You can find me at Munira Hudani PT. Um, and basically everything that I post is on diastasis. And I try to make it as easy to understand and as much as I can evidence-based because we don't have a lot, but whatever evidence we do have, I try to use that to really educate people through that visual medium. But also you can go onto my website at www.munirhudanipt.com. And I have a free resource guide. It's um, the top 10 reasons why your diastasis is not getting better and what to do about it. And it's a free downloadable guide and it goes over the top reasons why I think women are sort of reaching a plateau with their recovery. And I'll go over specifically what to do about it. If one of those reasons are the ones that uh, resonates with you. So you can download that for free on my website. Thank you so much for sharing everything today, you guys. And please, if this was a lot of information. We know that. Um, and we want to make it and we want to make it easy for you to understand and digestible. So if you have questions that stem from something that you heard today, 
please don't hesitate to reach out to either of us or both of us. Um, and we are more than willing to help you and then help also direct you to somebody who can maybe help you more in person. So uh, we are here for you. We want you to have better information and we want you to just understand your body and know that there is so much help and so much hope for walking the spectrum of all things diastasis and postpartum recovery in general. We are with you. Thank you so much for listening today. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Make sure you head over to my website, www.briannabattles.com and find my free and paid resources and make sure to connect with me on Instagram at brianna.battles. Talk to you soon.